Welcome to the Cult Film Companion Podcast, the home of movies that are off, under, and ahead of the cinematic radar. My name is Chris, I am your host, and I have a returning guest joining me for a very special episode about a very obscure movie from a very popular director. But before I introduce my illustrious host, I just wanted to remind everyone that the Cult Film Companion is now available on every major podcast platform. Please follow us on Twitter at cultfilmcomp, C-U-L-T-F-I-L-M-C-O-M-P for the latest updates and shoot us messages for recommendations and feedback for the shows. We love hearing from our audience and our fans. We do it because we love these movies and we get a kick out of the fact that you guys love these movies just as much as we do. We are also a member of the Blind Knowledge Collective at www.blindknowledge.com, which is a great resource for creators of videocasts and podcasts from around the world that cover in very interesting and specific topics. And the whole basis is that we provide some unusual information, but also in a very entertaining manner. So we're very proud to be part of this collective. The Cult Film Companion Podcast is also a featured podcast on Newsly. Newsly is an audio app for iOS and Android that picks up the most current and trending topics based on your suggestions for topics that you follow and then finds the latest articles. And instead of you sitting there and scrolling and reading, they will read them to you in a natural human voice. For the first time in the history of the internet, the entire web becomes listenable. Follow topics as specific as you would like from sports to science to Bitcoin to the Kardashians to movies which is a topic that I follow there on Newsly. And, of course, Newsly has podcasts as well, explore trending podcasts from over 50 different countries. Our podcast, Cold Film Companions, of course, there is a featured podcast. And please use the promo code C-U-L-T-F-1-L-M. That's Cult Film. Drop the I, pop it a one, and get a month free of their premium subscription. So download and use Newsly for free today at www.newsly.me. And with all that out of the way, I'd like to welcome back to the Cult Film Companion, Mr. Preston Fossil, who is the managing editor of Daily Grindhouse, the author of Landis, The Story of a Real Man on 42nd Street, and is now the gold medal winner for horror at the independent publishers award for his novel the Despi- excuse me the despicable fantasies 
of Quentin Surgenov. Preston, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. Please tell us what's going on with Daily Grindhouse, and please tell us about this this now award-winning book of yours. Uh, so Daily Grindhouse is a website dedicated to uh, covering uh, everything and all things related to exploitation cinema in what, whatever form exploitation cinema may take, be that the classics of the 60s through the 80s or the spiritual successors to old school exploitation movies like the erotic thrillers of the 90s or 80s B cinema. Uh, we're, we're really a catch-all for everything that's underground, uh, left of center, out there and strange, and everything that continues to carry the torch for that uh, spirit of strangeness and independence that characterized exploitation filmmaking. Uh, you can find us at uh, dailygrindhouse.com. Uh, the Despicable Fantasies of Quentin Serginov is my, my second fiction book. Uh, it was uh, published last year in uh, June uh, in conjunction with uh, Pride Month, and 35% of all proceeds from the book go to benefit the Trevor Project, which is a uh, nonprofit organization that offers suicide prevention services to LGBT youth. The, uh, the the book is really the strangest thing I've ever written, and it, it started out kind of as this joke between my brother and I. Uh, we shared a car with our parents in college, and some days we would have to walk to and from school. We we lived about three, four miles away from campus, and so we were going on these, like, ultimately six to eight mile kind of round trip walks and to come up with uh, a way to keep us occupied I, I started telling the story and the the origin of it was uh, one day we, we were just kind of like talking about guys we knew back in high school and how uh, the culture of Texas differed from Oklahoma where we'd gone to high school and I can't remember how the topic started but we started talking about how like the most uh, really kind of homophobic and bigoted and really kind of like insecure guys we knew were also huge WWE fans and like we thought it was you know, these were guys who like wouldn't even hug one another because that was too gay for them it's like you touch another guy that's gay and you know the same guys I'm sorry cooties oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I know like, the macho yeah the, the macho macho types yeah yeah, and these are the same guys who will sit there for like three hours a week watching, you know, Raw is War, where there's these like sweaty, half-naked dudes like grappling one another and like grabbing one another in the ring. And well, I can't remember which one of us it was, but one of us said, you know, if those guys ever found out that any of the wrestlers that they've been watching were actually gay and that they've been watching this gay guy like grapple with another dude, they would just like lose their minds. That would like end their worlds. And... That sparked something for me, and I started coming up with this story. It's like, okay, there's this wrestler, and he's outed, and then he gets abducted by a group of mad scientists, and they turn him into a dinosaur. And I can't remember why the hell I came up with a dinosaur of all things. I'm a big Jurassic Park fan. Maybe I'd been rewatching it recently. And just this whole weird story started to unfold. And, and kind of my kickoff for that was, what if John Waters had been given a million dollars, like around the time that he made female trouble when he was still kind of on the cusp of the earlier kind of punk subversive john waters and then like his later little bit more grounded stuff like polyester crybaby hairspray i i'd been watching a ton of john waters in college <laughs> and so i just started 
spinning this really crazy story and my brother would prod me, you know, make it crazier, make it crazier. That's not enough. And I eventually sat down and wrote it out and I would like pull it out at parties and like read excerpts from it to entertain people or if people really got into it, I would read the whole thing. It was, it was fairly short back then and it just kind of sat in a drawer for a while. And then two years ago, kind of right there at the height of COVID, I got a call from a guy named Mark Miller, who is the uh, founder and CEO of Encyclopocalypse Publications, which uh, started out as an audiobook only company. And they had uh, earlier optioned the rights to my first novel. And Mark called me to tell me that uh, he was going to be getting into paperback publishing now as well, and that they were going to be a complete public publication company that released audiobooks and print books. And he asked me if I had anything that I was interested in putting out there. And he said, uh, I'll publish anything you've got as long as it's good. And I really latched on to the anything part. <laughs> and I was like, anything? Well, I've got the story about a gay dinosaur wrestler. And we talked for about 10 minutes and, you know, this was when a lot of really negative stuff was going on in the world. And I thought, you know, it'd be good to put something positive out there and then also, you know, maybe do something beneficial for charity in the process so that this thing would, you know, constantly be accruing money for some charitable cause. And I talked to him about the Trevor Project and 10 minutes later, I hung up the phone and I pulled that old draft out and started rewriting it. And here we are. I love it. Um, as, as someone that, uh, my, my, my co my usual co-host on the show is openly gay. One of my, uh, one of my two brothers is openly gay. So these are, um, st stuff like the Trevor project is, is, is very near and dear to my heart. Um, because I hear so many terrible, terrible stories and, um, I'm a, lapsed professional wrestling fan and I just want to share with you a little anecdote that one of the first openly gay wrestlers unfortunately did end up taking his taking his own life um, and he was a very very talented athlete but he was often, I mean, we're talking late 90s, early 2000s, when he started to, to kind of to come out of the closet, he was, he was made the butt of, of jokes um, on TV. Um, so he's got a very, uh, unfortunately, a very tragic story. Um, but if you're people that are fans of professional wrestling will know who I'm talking about. His, the, uh, the man's name was... Chris Canyon and um, there's a interesting TV series on Vice called Dark Side of the Ring and each episode focuses on some of the um, more nasty aspects of the professional wrestling um, industry and there's a whole episode devoted to him but on a lighter note again I'm a lapsed wrestling fan but I'll catch up with things every once in a while You'll be thrilled to know that on uh, one of the wrestling programs now, one of the more popular characters on, I believe it's it's not WWE, it's their their competitor. I want to say it's called AEW. There's a um a wrestler called Luchasaurus. Have you seen Luchasaurus? No. 
He's a big, jacked-up dude covered in tattoos, and he wears a dinosaur mask. <laughs> so, like, when you yeah. were telling me that story, I was just like, oh, my God. Like, <laughs> you're like a prophet of... Uh, 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 <laughs> uh, um, so, that's just that's just interesting to me and uh congratulations to you and and of course we're gonna have all the information in the episode description of where you can pick up um preston's books and uh please give him a follow on twitter and uh keep up to date with all the good stuff that he's putting out there and before we started this episode we're of course talking about the directorial debut of academy award-winning director Oliver Stone. Now, the movie we're talking about is called Seizure. And for some reason, for the longest time, when I first really got into Oliver Stone um, as a director, I, I I go through I, I go through these phases where that if I find a director that I really, really like, I start kind of seeking out everything that they've done. For the longest time, I thought that his first movie as a director was something called The Hand, starring Michael Caine. That, I thought, was the first movie, but no, you gotta dig a little bit deeper, and we've got this little treasure here from 1974, a little movie called Seizure, and I was, um kind of impressed with myself I'm going to give myself a little pat on the back that this was not a movie that you you said that you were familiar with but you hadn't seen until I recommended it for the show that is that correct That is correct you you got me you are one of the few people who has been able to throw down the gauntlet on me and be the one to say, I think you should watch this obscure film rather than the other way around. So, you know, hats off to you. You got me. Thank you. Uh, yeah, like I said, like, I mean, you've, you, wrote, you wrote the book on 42nd Street and, and, and Landis and all that good stuff. So for me to dig up something, and it's interesting to me that, I mean, if you're a cult movie fan, um, there's some, or even just like a pop culture fan. There, there is some, some. We'll get into the 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 plot of the movie in a second, but I mean, this isn't a group of nobodies. I mean, to, to some people, <laughs> you throw it on, the only person you might recognize is the. You'll be like, oh, it's the little person from Fantasy Island. But I mean. This movie has got one of the all-time great cult actresses, Mary Warrenov, and 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 as I mentioned, Hervé Velayches. I, I hope I'm I'm not butchering his name, um, and oddly enough, just because I had recently covered this movie, um. Richard Cox from Cruising, and of course the lead of this movie is um, the, the the author in the movie is called Edmund Blackstone, but he's portrayed by Jonathan Frid, who if 
you were a fan of the original Dark Shadows, you know him very, very well. So, I mean, for kind of a weird movie, there are some there are some names attached here. And I just want what was your initial reaction to this movie? I mean, you said what had you heard about this movie? You said you had maybe mistaken it for a western at, at one point. Yeah, so I did, I knew that this movie existed. I knew that Mary Warrenov was in it and that Oliver Stone had directed it. And the reason I knew that is because, uh, according to Mary Warrenov, one of the silent producers on this thing was a guy named Michael Thevis. And Michael Thevis's bigger exploitation claim to fame is that he produced a movie called Poor Pretty Eddie that stars uh, Leslie Uggams, Shelley Winters, and uh, Ted Cassidy from the original Adams Family. And it is one of the, the nastier exploitation movies that was made at the height of the 70s exploitation boom. It uh, stars Leslie Uggams as a uh, jazz singer who inexplicably decides to take a road trip through the American Deep South and her car breaks down in the backwoods of Georgia and then a lot of terrible stuff happens that you would unfortunately maybe expect to happen if an African-American woman went on a road trip through the Deep South mm. in the 1970s. Yeah. And uh, it's, you know, it was very surreal to see people like Uggams and Shelley Winters and Ted Cassidy in it. And the reason that they were in it is that Mike Thevis paid them large amounts of money up front in cash under the table to be in it. And the reason that he could and did do that is that Mike Thevis was a uh, mafioso who was associated with a couple of New York's five families. He himself was Greek-American and started out his life as a, uh, a magazine stand owner. And upon realizing that the majority of his profits were coming from pornographic magazines, he decided to go all in on that and eventually became the mafia's number one porno guy back when it was still illegal in a lot of parts of America to be involved with uh, pornography. And he eventually rose up to the point that he was known as the Scarface of porn <laughs> and uh, had a uh, bad habits of murdering his competition or people who got in his way in the mm. mob underworld. And the FBI had begun to close in on him. And there were two things that Michael Thevis really wanted. One was not to get caught. And the other one was to be seen as a respectable, legitimate American businessman. And so he got into record producing and he was going to be building a family water park down in Georgia. And then he decided, well, I can be a movie producer. And if I'm a movie producer, well, that's that's a legitimate job and it's glamorous and it's something I can brag about. And I can launder money through making exploitation films. Yeah. And who's ever going to think that these low rent, grimy, seedy movies that play in drive-ins and on 42nd Street are actually mafia fronts for me to be laundering my money through? And so he used Poor Pretty Eddie as a money laundering front. And then, according to Mary Warrenov, Michael Thevis also was a silent producer on uh, Seizure and was investing money into this so that he could use it as a way to uh, demonstrate expenses and income on his taxes. And that, that was all I knew about it. I only knew of Seizure <laughs> as this footnote in the bigger Michael Thevis story. And you're right, I did for some reason think that, that this was a Western of some sort. And I think I've got it confused with another Mary Warrenov movie. 
and it's killing me now. What the hell did I think this I, was? You know, I have to say that I admittedly, shame on me, was not familiar with Mary Warnoff until I started doing this show. And she starts popping up in all these great movies. Uh, I think the, the first time that I really... I, I, I really got notice of hers, we covered um, Night of the Comet that she's in, uh, which is brilliant. And... I picked up the Criterion edition of Eating Raul, which led me to go back to the original Death Race 2000, and now here she is in Seizure, and uh, another movie that I'm looking forward to to covering is I picked up this Roger Corman's cult classics double feature, which um, has Caged Heat, which is Jonathan Demme's debut movie, and Jackson County Jail that uh, I haven't watched yet, but also features Mary Warrenoff in a very early role from Tommy Lee Jones. Um, she's she's a fascinating individual. Um, absolutely fascinating. And an absolutely gorgeous woman. Um, still to this day. And... I know that she got her start uh, in the uh, in the factory with Andy Warhol, and uh, and then she kind of got roped into Hollywood, and you know now she's been she's been putting her work in, and I believe that there is a documentary covering her life, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but I mean, she's been in so many good things. But I have to say, though, I guess the first time that I ever saw something that she was in, and I didn't even realize it, was a Suicidal Tendencies music video. Uh, with, really? Uh, yeah. She's, uh, I, uh, she's actually, I want to say that she's actually in two videos. I think she reprised the role. I want to say that the first time she was in their video for institutionalized and i believe she plays the mother of somebody in i i it's been a while since i've seen that video but that was probably the first time that i actually saw her and now like through doing the show it's just opened up this whole wonderful world of mary warrenoff and um wow just an absolute uh, i mean especially and I have to say, especially in this movie, Seizure, uh, there are some uh, some scantily clad scenes with her that are just, wow. I mean, this is a, like my dream 70s woman on, <laughs> on screen here. Not to sound pervy. Um, I, 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 I think she's a great actress, but she's um, absolutely gorgeous, too. Uh, do you do you know which movie you were you were thinking of now? Yeah, so this is this shows the way my mind works. So, you know, you mentioned Eating Raoul, which was directed by and also co-stars Paul Bartel, and Paul Bartel and Mary Warrenov are like BFFs. 
And like, you know, Paul Bartel used to tell people that he was married to Mary Warrenov, even though he was he was openly gay. Yes. But like he considered her essentially his like his heterosexual life partner. Right. And he directed a movie with Tab Hunter and Divine called Lust in the Dust, which was a Western. And it was this weird transference between Mary Warrenov and Paul Bartel going on in my mind where Mary Warrenov equals Paul Bartel equals Lust in the Dust. If A <laughs> equals B, therefore C. So I began to associate Mary Warrenov with Lust in the Dust, even though she is not in it at all. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. Uh, going back to Death Race 2000, again, uh, that's a movie got I'm going to be covering uh, directed by Paul Bartel. Uh, who, of course, I think kind of, I would say that his best work as a director, um, in my personal opinion, is Eating Raul. And I know, I mean, they talk so kindly about each other. And I believe, if I'm not mistaken, they got kind of cast as husband and wife, and not just in Eating Raul, but I, I be- numerous other movies, I believe, that they were kind of, they were just seen as this on-screen couple and it's very kind of funny because Mary Warnoff kind of comes off as a very tomboyish and she even admitted that she goes of all the Warhol girls I was the butch one and Paul Bartel comes across as this very sophisticated English men so like they're I don't know there's just something about them that their chemistry is so good and if if you people haven't seen Eating Raul um Wow, talk about a great dark comedy! But let's let's get. Yeah. <laughs> I was gonna say we should probably get back. Yeah, I mean, I'm kind of. This show is known for its off-topic tangents, especially when we start talking about you know some of these uh, these these little hidden gems in people's filmographies. But we should probably get back to seizure, and I, I guess long story short, what we're dealing with here is. Uh, a horror writer who is working on, of all things, a children's horror book. So I don't know if he's, he was R.L. Stein before R.L. Stein was a thing. And he's working on a, a, a book and they're entertaining for the weekend. And his, he's got his family and friends visiting and he's having this reoccurring nightmare and he's actually drawing these three characters and on on the cover what a very 70s poster right here uh the tagline is you cannot run from them you cannot hide from them their only purpose is the breath-stopping panic of seizure and it says underneath it the executioner the queen of evil and the dwarf and <laughs> Uh, I mean that kind of that kind of sums up what it is. I mean, it, I have to say in retrospect that this this movie. I mean, it sounds. I mean, especially towards the end, it kind of it starts off with a home invasion, which. It's pretty commonplace now. Home invasion thrillers and home invasion horror movies are pretty par for the course. I don't know how common they were back in the 70s. So this, you know, we're breaking a little bit of new ground to have just like these three people um, come into your home 
and kind of terrorize you and kind of play these games with you. And there's a there's more going on here in this the, the I got this a lot from the second time that it's a very cerebral movie because it really questions what actually happened you know given the the ending of this movie what actually was real and what actually was a dream a nightmare um we've got some inception levels of like different like mind things going on here um because one of the friends is telling um, Jonathan's Fred that he basically willed these three people into existence. He created them. So it's almost like we've got this horror writer that writes about these characters that come to life. And if someone's interested in a movie very similar to that premise, there's a great underrated John Carpenter movie from the 90s starring Sam Neill called In the Mouth of Madness, which, which with, deals with something like this. But what were your initial impressions from from you know from the viewing of this, uh, Preston? It's definitely a unique movie. It's it's not quite like any other thing I've seen, especially from this time period, uh, because it, it really plays with a lot of different things in terms of what kind of movie it's going to be. Because it starts out as this this weird character drama with some supernatural underpinnings. And then once the, the three invaders show up, it kind of briefly turns into Michael Haneke's funny games before funny games. <laughs> yep. The, yep. the three, yeah. The, yeah. The, the three of them, like, you know, telling them they're going to like put them through these like games and rituals to see who survives the night. And then, and then that kind of goes away for a little bit. And then it turns more into like this, like psychodrama uh, between like a husband, wife and child for a while. It's got like these like weird kind of underpinnings of ordinary people from hell. Uh, and then I don't know if we want to spoil the ending because the, the ending, no. you know, depending on your interpretation of it, you know, retroactively recasts a lot of what happens. Yes. Um, well, on this show, um it's it's well known that I mean the only way that we can really talk about these movies is that we have to we have to get into all the nitty gritty which especially in a movie like this we need to talk about the ending because like you said um, <laughs> this movie does something that I, I I first coined the phrase like a movie gaslighting you um, I first coined when we reviewed a movie called Let's Scare Jessica to Death uh, because the whole time you're watching Let's Scare Jessica to Death, it isn't until the very end that you realize this. you've been watching a vampire movie this entire time. And with Seizure, like you said, there's so many different things going on. It's uh, We've got personal drama. we got family drama. It, it seems like we've got quirky quirky friends of the family and they've got this weird relationship and and then the invaders show up and but bef- pr- prior to that there we we do get to hear this little radio bar- broadcast about three escaped inmates from a, a mental institution but i mean this movie 
plays with your sense of reality because it it comes pretty apparent pretty quick that while yes they are physically imposing and threatening to the characters in this house they also seem to have some sort of supernatural abilities one of the characters um wives you know she has this ritual where she goes up to bed early to talk to her long lost loved who is deceased and and then the dwarf her village chef shows up and starts sometimes he's talking in his voice and sometimes he's talking in this voice of this other person and it she's supposed to be getting this ointment to make her younger and in fact makes her older and decrepit and then you get the uh, the rich guy trying to buy off this crew of people, and then you get like the voice of reason. One of these, uh, one of the friends of the authors, kind of like explaining what he thinks is going on. But like you said, we don't really know exactly what's what's happening because, well, Preston. What, Talk about we'll we'll just get straight to it. Talk about the ending of this movie because it's very it's very unique. Yeah, so we we get kind of two endings. So you brought up earlier that he's been having this recurring dream, and the action reaches a point where the author suddenly sits up in bed, and you realize that the events of the movie are the recurring dream that he's been having, and that you've been watching him have this dream. But then things kind of start over as though this recurring dream is almost like this Groundhog Day-esque time loop. And Mm -hmm. he sees the queen of evil in his bed in this kind of like zombie form coming after him. And then we cut again and the movie starts over yet again with his wife telling their son to go wake him up. And their son goes upstairs and the son pulls back the covers and the author is dead in bed and we freeze frame and what seems to be a... uh, an omnipotent narration and a radio broadcast tells us that he has died of a heart attack. Right. And that's almost to me. And this was just my personal interpretation indicates that everything we've been seeing has been what was going through this guy's mind as he was dying. Kind of like the, the Bojack Horseman episode, the view from halfway down or like carnival of souls where we're seeing this person processing their death as they're experiencing it. You know, I, yeah, I wasn't really sure. I'm glad that you, I, I subscribe to your theory because I wasn't really too sure because like I said, the first time I watched it, I was going to be honest, I really, really liked this movie up until the ending because it started to do this, weird ground like you said weird groundhog day thing i'm like wait a minute so this was all a dream and then i started thinking back in the movie i'm like so this guy is dreaming about people in his life also having dreams which just seems like it's one of those dream within a dream kind of thing which like i said is kind of like a weird inception level type thing and then it does something that i generally don't like the the second like you, you, you see this a lot. It's a cliche in horror movies. Someone wakes up and it was all a dream, and they think everything's okay. And then thirty seconds later, it 
something, a, a jump scare will come out, and then it turns out that was really the dream, and then they were having this dream within a dream. But I like the fact that I what what kind of sold it for me the second time around watching was the um, the voiceover um, news report about it being a heart attack, and I, I I wasn't sure how to interpret it until you started talking. I was like, now you bring up Carnival of Souls, and you I've, I've seen it done in other movies too, where someone's kind of playing like, is this is this their, are they kind of living their last moments on screen for us? Is this how they're processing death? Um, so, I mean, it's, I, and I kind of like that, that this movie's open to interpretation because, you know, sometimes an ambiguous ending for me is frustrating. Other times it's not. I didn't like it as much the first time. Second time around, now that I was more kind of familiar with the plot and what was going to happen, I kind of bought into the whole thing that it really makes sense that this was all either him kind of writing his last book, his last horror novel in his mind before he has a heart attack, and he's actually coming to terms with... um, his strained relationship with his wife and his son and the the people in his life, um, the ones closest to him. So just a couple technical notes here. So uh, according to sources, the budget for this movie was a mere $250,000 Canadian. So you got to... Figure so 1970 even for 1974 standards, that's a that's like a shoestring budget. I mean that wouldn't even that wouldn't even cover the catering for an Oliver Stone movie <laughs> now, you know. <laughs> um, and this movie eventually was released November 6, 1974, and there's Oliver Stone really doesn't talk all that much about it. I mean, it, when it got... Um, it actually got a very limited theatrical release um, by Cinema uh, Cinerama Releasing Corporation and actually played on New York's 42nd Street in 1974. Probably one of the few places that you could, you could have caught this theatrically. And... It's one of those movies that uh, I'm sure there wasn't much interest in the rights until all of a sudden in the 80s and 90s, Oliver Stone's blowing up and he's um, he's a hot commodity in Hollywood. And I'm sure that it seems that the, the rights to this movie have jumped around enormously. Um, I know it was released in the 80s on VHS from Prison Entertainment. And there's actually a very uh, decent DVD and blue release, uh, which I picked up from Scorpion releasing. So this movie is, it's, it's easier to find now. Um, wh- where, did you, where were you able to find this movie to watch? Through a source of dubious means. Okay, that, say no more, <laughs> say no more. Um <laughs> Yeah, I mean, yeah, 
you know, if you could, you got to do what you got to do sometimes. Um, <laughs> but I mean, this is a movie worth checking out, uh, especially if you're an Oliver Stone fan. It's always interesting to me when you kind of find a director that you really like and you go back to find like the first movie they ever did. And I've, I've come across on this show now a, a couple instances where I really had no, I had no idea that Francis Ford Coppola's first movie, Dementia 13, was a Roger Corman movie. And I just recently got a hold of Jonathan Demme's directorial debut, Caged Heat. Um, it's always, you know, so if you get a direct, it's kind of like what I used to do when I found a band that I really, really liked. Um, I'd get, get really into the band, but then I would start finding out what, what's the kind of music that influenced this group that I like so much. Um, and that's kind of just been the way that I, I, I like to find my entertainment. Um, but, I mean, th there's not much... I mean, this, there was such a limited release, so there's really not much... Um, uh, as far as interview and trivia going on with this this movie, I know that it was filmed in Canada in, in in Quebec, and the house that is the main focus of the where I would say eighty eighty five percent of this movie takes place was not only the set for this movie but also housed the cast and the crew during the time of filming, and this was filmed over the course of um. A couple weeks, uh, maybe maybe a little over a month. Mary Warnoff was was commenting on um, that even though this was Oliver Stone's first movie, he was still kind of he had already gotten this like taskmaster mentality, and he was doing like you know se running scenes again and again and again, um, but. I mean, it's just a, it's it's just an interesting kind of movie. Um, one of the things that I do question, and I don't know how valid this is. I'm not sure if this was actually passed down from the MPAA or this was just something they slapped on the DVD. It, it, this movie is rated PG, and given some of the violence. In this movie, I kind of question the PG rating. Um, if you if you didn't know what this movie was rated, what were you think? Would you think this was a an R rated movie? So from this time period, I might actually say the PG. This is a really funny thing. Uh, ha have you ever seen the the trailer compilation Forty Second Street Forever? I actually have. Yes. Yeah, the, you go back and watch that, and it's hilarious because the the ratings in this time were so lax. You basically had to have like breasts and blood on screen to get yourself an R, and like it was like you either have super soft or super hard, and then everything in between is PG. And you, you go back and watch that, and you see stuff like the most twisted sexual desires of Doctor Jekyll and Sister Hyde, yes. rated PG, or Enter the Evil Torture Chamber of Doctor Sadism, from which no goodness can ever escape. See his diabolical experiment 
experimentations on human flesh <laughs> rated PG. And it's become a running joke between my wife and I to like come up with just like the most like violent and absurd fake taglines for movies that we can and then tack rated PG onto the end of them. Right. Uh, and I mean, th- this is just a really great example of that, though, because I mean, you know, there's the Mary Warrenoff spends like a portion of the movie in uh, her bra and panties running around getting terrorized by these uh, by these people. And then, you know, there are some pretty ghoulish uh character makeup for a couple of the invaders like the the queen of evil zombie form is pretty gnarly and mm-hmm. then like the the executioner like half of him is like burned up or like scarred up and it's like yeah you know, movies like this are why they ended up coming up with the pg-13 rating uh you know at the, at the time it's hilarious to see that this flies with pg yeah i mean characters get shot and there's blood uh a character gets decapitated it's not shown on screen uh, but to me, one of the scenes that really, and it's kind of a quick throwaway, it's while this is all happening, there's this whole kind of like mental duel over what the author and his wife, they have a young son, Jason, and it, it, it appears that the these three individuals are kind of after the, their end game is to get the kid. And. There is this, and to me, this is the kind of the scene where I'm like, really, you got away with this with the PG thirteen, the PG. There's a scene where he, the author has a vision of what's going to happen to his son, and the Queen of Evil. I mean, it's obviously a dummy; it's not a real kid, but she has basically the kid up in her arms and just throws him into the fireplace, and he's like, he's engulfed in flames. Like, up until that point, I was like, yeah, I can, you know, it's kind of, you can kind of get away with some of this stuff. That was the scene I was like, wow, that's, but then again, you know, the ratings things to me are just so, they go, and we could have a whole podcast, and maybe at some point, uh, maybe you, me, and somebody else could just talk about how ratings and edits are so crazy across the board because one year something will fly the next year uh, 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 that's not that's not happening in this movie um or they count the 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 number of f-bombs and you're like you could have one f-bomb which to me is just dumb because you're just bringing more attention onto that one f-bomb that's the that's the line if you have a character throwing around the F word, left, right, and center, eh, it gets kind of played out, and a kid is less likely to mimic it because they'll go, oh, it gets said all the time. But if you have, like, I've seen this, um, there's like a montage on YouTube of all, like, the um, the Marvel movies now, like, their montage of the one F bomb they're allowed in a movie. And, I mean, that's kind of like. You know, I just have issues with the ratings. Like, what what flies one year doesn't fly with the other, um, and I'm sure you could you could speak to this. Um, you know, especially with Grindhouse Cinema, uh, because well, I, I I'm guessing that they were less likely to be concerned about a rating because um, I mean the con you know a lot of times contractually a director you know working with a big studio is contractually obligated. They're like. 
okay, we're going to do this movie. You are obligated to bring in an R movie. And the MPAA says, no, 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 this is NC-17. Or back in the day, this movie is rated X. I mean, it's funny to me. This was well before my time. But one of the most interesting things to me was, like, movies would be rated X. When I think of an X-rated movie, I think of pornography. Mm -hmm. And... The last thing that I comes to mind, I'm like, I remember watching Midnight Cowboy um, in uh, film school, and then we had this whole discussion about how why Midnight Cowboy was rated X, and I was just like, Am I missing? You're like, Am I missing something here? Was I born in the wrong time period? Like, I, and to me, although I I do harp on these kinds of things a little too often. One thing that I have to say, though, is I don't know if you're aware of this, but what what happens... Do you know what happens with Canada and censoring? No, this is not something I'm aware of. So I, I found this out through um, a, a bonus feature on a David Cronenberg um, disc. Either I think it was from Scanners, where they had a roundtable discussion. It was him, John Carpenter, and John Landis... And they were talking about the ratings and censors. And um, so as bad as I I think, or not as bad, but as much as I criticize the MPAA and their rating system, at least they don't do what they did in Canada. And David Cronenberg explained it. He goes, well, I like, he had a less, uh, Carpenter and Landis were a little harsher towards the MPAA than when we came to David Cronenberg talking he said, well, you know, I've had my issues with the rating boards here and in America and the MPAA, but it's nothing like they do in Canada. At least the MPAA will give you notes and say, these are the things that need to be cut or altered or re-edited, and then you can resubmit it. In Canada, they will just edit your movie the way that they see fit. If they don't like something, it's out and... Uh, and then it's also a crime, like, if you try to, like, I mean, I'm not sure if that's the way it is now. This this interview was from the 80s, but, I mean, that amount of censorship, they were like, at least the MPA will give you, the director, a chance to change your own movie. In Canada, you're just like, nope, this is the way it's going to be. The photo should be cut out. It's gone. You're never going to see it again. It's just like, wow, okay. You know, so, um... I'm not sure where I was going with this. Oh, seizure being rated PG. Um, what? I mean, there's really, like I said, the the technical aspects. There's really not that much interesting. I, I'm just more curious, Preston. What were some of the scenes to you that really kind of stuck out? The scene where he decides that he's going to throw his kid under the bus and give himself a second chance because you never see that. No. In- any kind of movie so there's always like the noble parental sacrifice and there's the scene where the the queen of evil is basically like you know give us your kid and we'll let you live and he like thinks about for a second he's like okay and you never see that and i was you know shocked that they went there and you know amazed that uh, a movie had the the balls to do that and so you have like this character make this kind of irredeemable decision and it's uh it makes sense to me in retrospect if this is like him like 
you know, thinking to himself, would I do this to prolong my life if this is like this death dream that he's having? But in the moment, it's really jarring. Yeah, and I think he's he's got this um, this line, like it's an inner monologue. He's kind of talking to himself, and he says, he, he's reflecting, well, he goes, well, my wife is dead, and I, I don't owe any, what is it? I don't owe any promises to the dead, I think. It's something along the, he says something along the lines of that. I don't owe any promises to the dead. Yeah, and he straight up gives up his son. Uh, luckily, his son has the presence of mind to not be where he told him to hide because he's it's interesting like you mentioned that to me that but there's there's some nasty undertones here because when he's getting ready for bed the mom comes in and the son says that he's scared of dad (laughs) he's like i'm she's like what are you scared of he's like i'm scared of daddy it's like oh like there's some just okay there's some just just some nasty undertones here and I just wonder if um, you know I kind of wish that I could get inside the alcoholic coke fueled mind of Oliver Stone what he was thinking when he wrote this um, because it's there's a lot more kind of bubbling under the surface you could easily say that on uh, you know just like as it is, it's kind of like a home invasion, supernatural thriller kind of thing. But there's some interesting family dynamics going on here. Um, and yeah, our protagonist, he's not particularly likable. And he does some nefarious things. Like he shoots, I think it's his brother in law. And like his first instinct when these when these people appear is he books it out of there. <laughs> that's, his first, that's his first response. He's like, uh, okay, uh, I'm out. <laughs> I'm just like, uh, like the most likable characters are. I would say the most likable characters are the son Jason, um, the older kind of professor guy um who uh, is best friends with the author and Mary Warnoff's character is also pretty sympathetic i mean there's a scene she's married to this really greasy rich guy and they they clearly they're <laughs> whether they they admit it or not they have kind of an open relationship he's openly flirting with the nanny she's having an affair with some random guy that's staying at the house but I mean, there's that scene where um, they said they're gonna. You have to circle the house five times, and you know the last one will die. And she's like carrying her husband, like because he's having chest pains. Even though like we've seen him doing push-ups and airboxing earlier in the movie, but he's having chest pains and. She's still, like, she's trying to drag him along to get to it. And, I mean, he finally kind of, like, puts her down and throws a fit. And um, she ends up, yeah, she ends up pretty much bra and panties at this point in the movie. Running around, and I guess what what she mentioned was the, it was freezing. Gotta figure, this was filmed in Canada in the fall. 
and they actually went out and painted the leaves green to make it seem more like a spring summertime. But they this was in the fall in Canada, so it was a night shoot, and this poor woman's running down the side of the road in a bra and panties and look like high heels, although she's very she's a very tall actress, so could just be her regular shoes, but she's running down the road. Um and then there's you know the final then it's very i mean to me it one of the more predictable things that i could see about this movie and the only thing that i actually kind of called <clears throat> because this movie actually is pretty unpredictable especially towards the end but the scene where she's she seems to escape and she ends up back at this texaco station um I it was immediately I was like, all right, the person under the car is not a mechanic. I didn't think that it was actually going to be um, the little person. I thought it was maybe the uh, the strong man, but I mean that was the only thing that I really called. I'm like, that's kind of like a predictable cliche in horror movies. You think you get away, and just when you think you get away, you know the killer shows up out of out of uh, nowhere. And that's the thing about these characters is at first, I mean, the author who has seemingly, I guess, conjured these people into being just thinks that they're escaped psychos, but they kind of show up whenever they want, wherever they want. And they'll talk in weird voices and actually the whole mythology is kind of uh, built upon this very interesting scene between um, the writer Edmund Blackstone and his um, his friend who um, they kind of like his friend kind of tells him that like the, the back story of um, of where these creatures came from and you know there was the queen of evil and there was um this 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 land where they feared african american skin so they kind of scarred and mutilated black people and they were usually mute and then there was this evil dwarf who was a prince that kept people in very very small cages like so small that they could they couldn't even stand up so there's some interesting mythology going on here, um, but uh, what's a, what was another standout kind of a scene in the movie for you? I think it's the, there's a really great character establishing moments with that, and I think it's his brother-in-law. I was never quite sure of the the relationships between these people with the the really seedy guy at the the Texaco station mm -hmm. and just the way that he like just browbeats everybody in this scene and just immediately sets himself up as the guy that she wants to see die first <laughs> and that that actor just embodies like smarmy like entitled rich guy energy so well and it's like you just want to see this guy get it yeah um yeah he he always has something nefarious going on He's very, very wealth, uh, wealthy, but he's also a penny pincher, and he thinks that you know, he, he's the the his doo doo don't stink. He's just yeah, he's very much the guy that you don't want to die. Um, and then there's just like the random 
people that die early on in this the um the brother the yeah i'm not really sure the relationships aren't clearly established um they seem to be friends and family although i have no idea why anyone is friends with the guy we were just describing this very <laughs> like i don't get like why you would want to have him around um he just kind of seems yeah, I don't know if he's uh, related or if, like, the the author's wife was good friends with Mary Warrenoff, and she, the, so he was just, like, along for the ride. Um, yeah, there's just, like, some random scenes that kind of go nowhere. Um, like, there's a weird scene at the, the table where he, he wants t- to invest in this other guy's beach resort. Or something like it's just kind of yeah. It's just kind of weird. It's just like it's, it seems like out of place, and I wonder if um, I'm not sure how long your version of the movie is. This is 91 minutes, and I know that this is not really. I mean, it's not like an extended cut, but this is. I think the longer cut of the movie, there were some scenes cut out, and I wonder if that was one of just, like, the weird random scenes that was cut out because that conversation really goes nowhere because everyone's dead by the end. Um, yeah, it's just kind of... Uh, eh. uh, any other notable scenes that kind of stuck out for you? Not really. It was really one of these movies where, like, everything came together for me at the end because up until that that final like death reveal i was more watching this as like this this curiosity and like this weird thing and i really didn't come to appreciate it until maybe the next day thinking about it in retrospect and like thinking about how you can interpret different character interactions and different scenes as like facets of this guy's psyche uh you know combating one another and like representations of him trying to come to terms with his impending death right and you just just as you were talking another thing that came to mind another reason that I was kind of shocked other than the scene of the little boy being thrown into the fireplace is I mean it turns out it's all a dream and it didn't really happen but there's uh, we're not really shown too much explicitly but in one version of this the of this story the author's wife kills herself and writes i loved you on the mirror um and we see like the bloody razor blade next to it and that for me that's just that that that's still right there of him like he's like looking down at the sink to see the bloody razor and then written in blood on the mirror is I loved you I was just like wow that's I mean that's what I kind of what I really dig about this movie especially upon rewatch is there's kind of glimpses of the genius to come not to say that Oliver Stone is a genius, but there's glimpses of a very talented filmmaker, a very talented storyteller here in this movie. Um, there's some diamonds here in the rough. You just kind of... There, there just happens to be a lot more rough around it. And it's certainly not a movie that would appeal to 
I wouldn't even recommend, I don't even think that I would recommend this to people that are like fans of mainstream Oliver Stone. I don't think that mainstream Oliver Stone fans would like this movie. Um, but then again, I'm going to ask you a question and then I'm going to answer it myself. Um, what, what, what are some of your favorite Oliver Stone movies? Uh, let's see off the top of my head, Scarface, uh, natural born killers. I know he just wrote Scarface, but I'm still counting it. Sure. Um, those are the two biggies off the top of my head. I, I'm not nominally an Oliver Stone fan. I appreciate him, but uh, he he probably doesn't crack my top 10 or 15 di- uh, favorite directors. No, me either. And yeah, I was I was thinking about this. I was like, because I was going to ask you to like, where would you rank this as far as Oliver Stone movies? But there's there's too like, and then I started going through his filmography. And I'm like, there's just there's just too many here. Um, I mean, there's the Oliver Stone that likes to play fast and loose with history, which I was okay with for JFK and The Doors, but after that I was just like, mm, enough, like, enough of that. I kind of like, and this one of, I, I am a big fan of Natural Born Killers. Um, I like the collaboration between Brian De Palma and Oliver Stone for Scarface. Uh, Platoon, I, I really, really enjoy. But I one of my favorite Oliver Stone movies is a very weird movie, and it's a weird choice, and I'm sure it doesn't rank up there with a lot of... If you talk to a hardcore Oliver Stone fan, I happen to really, really like this... I say it's a small movie because it does... It, it's been greatly overshadowed by his much larger popular movies that have, you know, uh, a little movie called U-Turn. Did you ever see U-Turn? I'm aware of it, but I've never actually seen it. Is this the one with J-Lo and Sean Penn? Right. And, uh, don't get, yeah. I, I, I tell people that there are, um, because people are like, oh, it's J-Lo. And I say, there are, um, (laughs) yeah, I have in my own little mind the trifecta of J-Lo movies where I'm generally not a fan of her as an actress or as a musician, but I have my trifecta of J-Lo performances that I think are really, really good. U-Turn, Out of Sight, and The Cell. Those three for me, I'm, I, so I kind of give her a pass as far as acting goes, and um, I really like her in U-Turn. What I, I, she's not my favorite character in U-Turn. What I really like about U-Turn is Sean Penn is sleazy, plus you've got just, it's a great cast of just very bizarre characters. He's, he's a guy stuck in a town, and um, the mechanic is played by Billy Bob Thornton, the town bully is played by Joaquin Phoenix, the blind beggar on the side of the road is played by John Voight. Nick Nolte is married to Jennifer Lopez, but wants her dead. Um, so U-Turn, I would actually recommend... I think you might get a kick out of U-Turn. It's very... It's very kind of offbeat for what Oliver Stone does, and it's probably one of the movies that gets talked about the least, and maybe that's why it's one of my my favorite movies by him. But... I mean, 
I think that if you're a fan of grindhouse cinema and you're a fan of like kind of low budget exploitation movies, uh, I would recommend checking out Seizure. Who 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 do you think is like the um the the target audience today for a movie like this? Exactly what you just said. This is like for the Vinegar Syndrome, Severin, Arrow crowd, uh, people interested in cinema from this time period, exploitation, underground cinema, uh, you know, may- maybe art house fans who are interested in seeing like the, the early stages of this, excuse me, auteur's development. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah, definitely not a mainstream film. No. Um maybe that's why I kind of like it. And then I'm thinking about ranking my favorite Oliver Stone directed movies. Um, he's not a director that I have a particular affinity for. I respect him as a director and I, I do enjoy uh, some of his movies, but if a new Oliver Stone movie gets released, especially if it's going to be about a president, I- I'm just not interested when it comes to h- history. <laughs> I like watching documentaries I don't, I don't, I'm not really interested in Oliver Stone's twist on history. <laughs> just, that's just my personal opinion. I think that I like when he's, when he's making a bizarre movie like Seizure. Like, that's the kind of Oliver Stone movie that I like. He's making something like Natural Born Killers. Um, and again, one of my favorites, he's making a movie like U-Turn, which is just, it's a quirky little thriller um, with a, excellent cast and um yeah um but any final thoughts on seizure um there's really not all that much to kind of to talk about because the the history of this is pretty much there was a lot a lot a lot of drinking on set everyone lived together (laughs) everyone the cast and crew all lived together and um yeah mary warren of kind of got roped into doing this um, just because she had, uh, you know, she was starting to, to do some, some movies here and there, and uh, she got this opportunity. And it's very funny, and I, uh, and if you don't have any final thoughts, I just want you to, to end with this little story that <laughs> she said, she goes, I was very grateful that Oliver Stone put me in this movie, but I met him years years later and he had absolutely like no interest in talking to me whatsoever so that to me just kind of like okay i mean you forget you forget it's like the guy that forgot about forgot about all the little people that helped elevate him to the level that he is today you know um everyone else in the crew really seemed to get along very very well together and Oliver Stone kind of uh, already kind of uh, had his uh, his attitude and reputation that seems to have uh, to come out to light even more so as the years go by. But that's just to me just a very interesting kind of story to be like, okay, you know, I did your I was in your first movie, and now you won't even give me the time of day. She was like, I wasn't trying to like try to get into one of his movies or anything like we just were at a party together and he seemed like no interest in it and the only comment that I could come across when this movie was finally released on DVD and Blu-ray in 2014 was the Oliver Stone put like a 30 word 
blog post up going, I don't really, I don't really know much about it. I'm not sure if it's going to be a quickie release. I'm not really involved in it. I won't be involved in the extras. And I would only recommend it if you want to see my baptism by fire as a director. So, Damn. yeah. Um, so, there you have it. Um, any final thoughts on Caesar, Preston? That seems like the perfect way to wrap it up. Okay. Well, once again, can you just hit us with your Twitter handle and uh, grind uh, the website for you and your books, please, if you wouldn't mind. Uh, you can find me on Amazon. Just search my name, Preston Fossil. That will get you the uh, latest uh, editions of my books. Uh, one of them has gone through a couple of different publishers, and if you just look up my name in Amazon, Preston Fossil, K-R-E-S-T-O-N-F-A-S-S-E-L, that'll get you uh, all the most recent editions of all my books. Uh, you can find the Daily Grindhouse. It's dailygrindhouse.com, and you can find me on Twitter, at Preston Fossil. Uh, thank you for having me on. Uh, my pleasure. Glad to have you on. Um, I wish you nothing but continued success. Congratulations once again for uh, the gold medal for horror at the Independent Publishers Award for the Despicable Fantasies of Quentin Shurjanov. Mr. Fossil, thank you so much again for joining me, and I hope that uh, we can cover another movie here. Maybe I can pull... I, I doubt I'll be able to pull another movie out of my... Uh, my tuchus here that you haven't uh, haven't seen yet. You seem to be the ultimate kind of grindhouse um, aficionado. I'll, although I, I do have a question for you, I'll, I'll ask you um, off mics. But anything coming up on uh, uh, the daily grindhouse that we should keep our eyes out for? Uh, not off the top of my head in terms of new stuff, but, you know, we've got some great recurring features. Uh, Riley Cassidy does Will My Mom Like This, which is a really fun recurring column where she subjects her mom to some gnarly horror movie and then writes about <laughs> that viewing experience and whether or not she enjoyed it. And, uh, you know, uh, we've got Rachel Reeves, who covers vinyl stuff. Uh, we've got a column called Unearthing the Gothic, which takes a look at the legacy of gothic horror and horror cinema and literature. Uh, but a lot of really great recurring stuff. And, uh, you know, we're always in search of new contributors. If you have an off-the-beaten-path movie like Seizure that you want to introduce to the world, or if there's some more mainstream or more well-known grindhouse or exploitation film that you have an alternate take on or that has some different significance to you, uh, you know, we want to hear it and uh, hit us up on our uh, DMs on Twitter at Daily Grindhouse. Preston, thank you so much again for joining me. All the information will be in the episode description. Please follow him on Twitter. Please give um, give him some love on Twitter and um, check out his books on Amazon. Again, I'm going to spell his... It's pronounced Fossil but it's P-R-E-S-T-O-N-F-A-S-S-E-L. Preston Fossil, thank you again. Joining me from Dallas, Texas, over here in Rhode Island for the Cult Film Companion, we are signing off for this one. Thanks for joining us.